Welcome to the IP Physics Buzz, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. I'm Ed Orley. And I'm Scott Hogue. On the show, we discuss all things IPv6, strategy, design, deployment, and operations. And I'm Tom Coffeen. We've spent 20 plus years working with the IPv6 protocol. We run a consulting firm where we get IPv6 working for our customers. And we're here to share some lessons learned on how to avoid common mistakes. We're glad you joined us. In this episode, we're going to kick off our IPv6 basic series. And it's a chance to introduce IPv6 to those of you who have only been working with IPv4 and might not know as much about IPv6 as a protocol. And the goal of the series is, is to allow folks to sort of reference back and, and have something that they can uh, can uh, listen back to around v6 as, as, as a basic. So we'll start at a high level and cover IPv6 basics, why IPv6, how it's different than IPv4. And in later episodes, we're going to cover some of the technical details around like address format, neighbor discovery, and all the other IPv6 details. So why don't we kick it off? We'll start talking about maybe why IPv6 sort of came about, what drove its development, why in the world did we even need it? <laughs> yeah, I guess that would have been back in the early to mid-1990s. You know, the IETF saw how the use of classful IPv4 addressing and hierarchical IPv4 addressing was, was wasteful. They didn't realize that, you know, when the internet became privatized and it really took off in the mid to late nineties that it would be as popular as it became. Right. And there was a, it was a scarcity or even a concern way back then about scarcity of IPv4 public addresses. Yeah. I think, I think that what they were doing was they're starting to measure out the allocations and starting to realize that the rate of consumption of the preset sort of A, B and C class mm -hmm. sizes just didn't make sense for most organizations because the the size and need of the breadth of address space that, that was actually required for most organizations didn't actually match up to the buckets that they were built that they had pre-built, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of allocations. And 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 really that initial design work, while very simple and straightforward in concept, didn't match the explosive need requirements of of what was happening on the public internet as as it was growing. Mm -hmm. And and you know, changing those, there was a bunch of work that was done to change that, obviously, but uh, and that was really just to slow the tide of of how quickly we were going to consume what we had. But there yeah. were a bunch of just, I would guess, I would say, not malicious, but just tactical mistakes in terms of allocations of v4 address space very early on mm -hmm. in the development of IPv4. That if maybe we had been had a little bit more foresight, we might not have made those and might have slowed the tide a little bit yeah. um, relative to, to the need, but V6 came about really to address that core fundamental need, right? Yeah, because CIDR was first introduced in 93, about that same time, right. you know, when the internet yep. was kind of taking off, they realized, ah, oh, we can't stick to these classful address types. And so CIDR was introduced and about that, that same time, you know, uh, you know, network address translation appeared, right. you know. Yeah, um, two, two methods to slow the consumption of public v4 address space, really, right? Yeah, to allow organizations to use private addresses inside and conserve their public addresses for things at the edge. And so, yeah, RFC 1631, which described NAT, was a short-term solution, and that was introduced in 1994. So all this was happening in the early 90s, and that's when the you know, the the first IPNG 
working group was kind of formed. And the thought was, well, we got to figure out, well, what comes next if this doesn't pan out? You know, and there were different evaluations or different options and different methods that the that the IPNG working group looked at, you know, to compare and contrast different ones and then allocate them the next protocol version number in sequence, which was six was the next sequence number. Right. Uh, and the, the common question about five is just that it was allocated to a streaming protocol that just never ended up getting deployed. Yeah. ST2, but, mm -hmm. uh, Internet Streaming Protocol version two. It was not intended to be a wholesale replacement for IPv4. It was just got the next version number assigned right. to it by Internet Assigned Number Authority. Uh, and so then when IPNG was looking at different versions, they had actually assigned, you know, IP version seven, uh, six, there, there's different version numbers that are already allocated, you know, and there was seven, eight, nine, that were reserved for historic, you know, options. And then the option that got chosen, uh, which is called SIP, S-I-P-P, then it got allocated uh, version six. And right. so if there was ever to be another IP version, it would be IP version 10 is the next unassigned IP version, which is really going to confuse people. <laughs> we go to IP well, it's confusing 10. enough to go from four to six and sort of- Four like plus six equals 10. People equals are going to get 10. so confused. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I guess it comes down to the next thing, which is sort of like- you know, what really drove the development side was really just mm -hmm. the need requirement. I think first and foremost about just the absolute panic probably at the time, mm -hmm. considering the explosive growth of the internet, the absolute panic that we were going to fundamentally run out of V4 address space, mm -hmm. that yeah. there was just not going to be any more room to grow. Yeah. And that there was going to be all sorts of weird, weird things going on to, to fit more people on, on the internet. And, mm -hmm. and, and we did those weird things. I mean, cider and, and that were the weird things to <laughs> allow us to, to get around that problem. So we, we made it an application development problem, not a networking problem by doing mm -hmm. that in certain ways, because so much code had to be written to do NAT traversal, to detect NAT, to determine, make your applications work through NAT, mm -hmm. right? Like, like we carry all that technical baggage with us today mm -hmm. as a result of that, that core fundamental leap that we sort of all made at that time of saying, this is the only way to solve the problem. Um, mainly because IPv6 didn't get developed fast enough or adopted fast enough. And that's not a mm -hmm. critique of the ITF. I think that's just a practical reality of how quickly things were moving back then. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anyone could have solved that problem that particularly quickly anyway. So yeah, think, and then HTTP and protocols like that worked with a NAT if the right. server didn't wasn't too picky about the source address changing in transit. Those protocols worked you know, end to end. And, you know, that was the the early 90s. You know, I remember, I think it was 93. I think I got my first Mosaic browser <laughs> for my Windows. I'm, I don't know, probably like a 386 or something way back when. And dialed up with a modem, created a slip connection to an ISV and, yeah, that was installed. That was like ninety three, ninety four. You know, you Mosaic. installed trumpet on your Windows three one one. Yeah, <laughs> Windsock. Yeah. yeah, all those things. Yeah, that was in that era, and all this was happening at that same time. You know, cider. Nah, we didn't. 
And what, what I think people fail to realize is we didn't have a lot of lessons learned for V4 yet to try and make mm -hmm. design decisions about V6. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine taking the compression of all the ideas about IPv4 and trying to take decades of experience that we have with that now and then compress mm -hmm. that down into a few years and say like, oh, you know, try and figure this out and come up with a new protocol now today. Mm -hmm. I think it would be very, very difficult to do. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't, you know, put any blame on those that were first going through this iteration back then. Yeah. Trying to figure out what was next. I, I, I do think there were some decisions that were made about V6 um, in terms of fundamentally had to do with more of like hardware architecture back in the day. And, and, and that sort of has to do with, you mm -hmm. know, how fundamentally V6 is different than V4. We could talk a little bit about how they're the same and how they're different, um, you know, in terms of the behavior for the protocol itself. Um, that might be helpful for a few folks in terms of yeah. just fundamentally understanding the difference. I guess it's... Yeah, because at that time, you know, 95 and then 98 was the first, you know, IPv6 standard. You know, the IETF didn't want to throw everything out and start completely fresh. So they took what they knew was working with IPv4 and and kept those those characteristics. So, you know, v4 and v6 both share you know, a four-layer internet model. Right. Uh, they're both a routed protocol. They're connectionless datagram delivery protocols at the, you know, at the IP layer. It's just a networking protocol. You know, the session is added with, or the connection-oriented aspects of IP is added with TCP on top of it. But basically, you know, the protocol is connectionless. They're end-to-end -end routed protocols that support, you know, unicast, multicast, anycast. Those things are common. They ride on top of the same layer two protocols like Ethernet or Wi-Fi right. or FIDI or <laughs> Carrier Pigeon or whatever. And then the, the other, you know, uh, transport protocols on top of those, the transport layer protocols like... TCP and UDP and quick, which is a modern convention, but those are the same. Right. You know, a TCP header is exactly the same format when it's used with IPv4 or IPv6. And we, and we do aspects are the same. And we do routing fundamentally the same. So the routing mm -hmm. protocol selections are the same too. So that's, yeah. so that was important. I mean, they're incremented to be a different version number based off of mm -hmm. which, which protocol they're working for. Although, Interestingly enough, many of them can can interoperate for both. So mm -hmm. um BGP, yeah. it's the same protocol. It's just there's two different address families. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they and they both use ICMP. Mm -hmm. Um, although it's more ingrained in IPv6, ICMPv6 is more ingrained in IPv6 than ICMP was ingrained yeah. in IPv4. It was more optional, it wasn't uh, required. And then the quality of service markings. So the the toss byte in an IPv4 header exactly the same as the traffic class traffic class field in yep. an IPv6 header. So there's many aspects of the protocols that are the same. Yeah, and that's and that, I think it's important that we a lot of that stuff carried forward. And I think in, intentionally so. I, th I don't think that was a mistake on any part of the the ITF as they were working through that. Is they wanted mm -hmm. some consistency in terms of what mm -hmm. was happening there. Um, just reduce learning and, and the delta that was required to adopt one mm -hmm. versus the other, right? Otherwise, you know, 
you know, it's, it, it becomes too big of a, too big of a learning curve, right? Yeah. To do something too radical. And there were lots of things that were working, working right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for well. sure. I mean, I think, and they solved some of the fundamental problems that existed with before that they hadn't thought through as carefully. So uh, I think multicast works better, right? Fundamentally mm -hmm. in, in V4 than V6, just given the weird things that we had to do with, and, and just the allocations that existed for like, you know, for, you know, Mac address, right? For, for, for IPv4 and just the weirdness that has to go on for fitting all the multicast stuff in the way you want it to. Um, all that was just, you know, had to be, you know, forced in backwards for IPv4, that stuff, we were able to do yeah. a clean slate design for IPv6 yeah. and we yeah. didn't have that problem. Uh, and it's reflected in how, how, how much simpler it is to do certain things um, uh, in V6 than V4, just to figure yeah. that stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nicer in IPv6. You're less likely to have overlaps or things like that. Yeah. Different IPv4 multicast addresses equate to the same layer to multicast MAC address. Yes, much mm -hmm. cleaner. Well, mm -hmm. I, I guess we could talk about some of the things that are fundamentally different um, mm -hmm. that, that I think uh, most people consider improvements. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess some people could argue they aren't, but mm -hmm. but uh, these are some of the innovation portions of what V6 brought to the, to the landscape um, mm -hmm. uh, for design. I guess we could start off with probably the biggest one, which was extension yeah. headers. The concept yeah. of extension headers was probably the most radical change for, for the design and layout of the of the of the actual packet itself, right? Yeah, and, and it fundamentally changes. It's very very different than V four, right? In terms of how it operates. Yeah, um, yeah. In IPv four, the header contained things like fragmentation, and it had options and padding for things like source routing, and so it was a complicated header because it wasn't always fixed at 20 bytes. It could possibly be longer. IPv4 had this protocol field, which if it was like a six set to a six, then that would indicate that it's a TCP header that follows the IPv4 header. If it was 17, then it was a UDP header that follows. With IPv6, there's a next header field in the protocol header, and that indicates the protocol that follows, but it's really an extension header, the next header could be, you know, a six or a 16. It could be TCP or UDP, or it could be an extension header that does fragmentation or routing or has other functions built into it. Right. And it was a way for us to logically extend that mm -hmm. while keeping the header a fixed, and this is an important mm -hmm. distinction, I guess, is that the mm -hmm. header for V6 is fixed in size. It's 40, right? 40 versus, bytes, yep. Versus a V4 header can, I think, be 20 to 60 bytes, depending on yeah. All the additional version, padding, options, identifications, yeah. header checksums, right? All that sort of stuff mm -hmm. that's in there. Yeah, um, options and padding makes it longer. Yep. Yeah. So those are those are important sort of considerations that were we we were trying to remove some of that. I think some of that was coming about because because some of the ASIC design at the time having variable sized headers was really problematic in terms of mm -hmm. performance, and and, yeah. and so I think this protocol was. Part of the strength and maybe weakness of the protocol was the time that it was coming about in, in regards to hardware capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking to try and optimize around what we could do with hardware as mm -hmm. much as possible. And so the V6 header became one of those things that became a, maybe a point of fixation mm -hmm. <laughs> to yeah. optimize around that for performance within hardware because we were, you know, trying to 
the network data paths were growing so fast and you're trying to move so much traffic that the core backbone of the internet of all these big service providers, they, they were trying to solve how do we make decisions as quickly as possible to, to move traffic through our network and mm -hmm. having a fixed size header actually solves a lot of those related problems because you, you can put mm -hmm. into an ASIC exactly what you need to look up in each one yeah. of those, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because um, the V6 header 40 bytes and it ends evenly on a 64-bit boundary uh, so it can be parsed and handled in hardware very fast. Right. It can be, it's hardware accelerated uh, the it's same as IPv4. Right. It can, it can be hardware accelerated in a much more optimized way mm -hmm. based off of just how the protocol fundamentally is, is set mm -hmm. up versus maybe how how IPv4 is built. You can do mm -hmm. certain sets of optimizations within IPv4, which really had to do with like dropping certain packets, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Saying I'm not going to forward those packets based off yeah. of certain characteristics. But the fact that you could like even fragment and force a router to fragment for you on your behalf. Yeah. Right? And that was like a big a big decision change that I think is fundamentally different too, which was sort of like, you know, allowing who who can format who can fragment within a network right mm -hmm. who has a who has the capability or rights to to fragment whose responsibility is that and whose responsibility is to deliver those packets mm -hmm. i think that's that was a fundamental change in terms of ipv6 versus mm -hmm. ipv4 too um yeah I, I, yeah I guess i guess what else was like a big thing different well, the addresses are huge and yeah like much larger yeah. in ipv6 i, I that probably that's goes without obvious, saying right? yeah um, and then I think besides that, the flow label was different. It, we never had a, a field like that in IPv4. And so IPv6 introduced a flow label field right. where the source sets this 20 bit field to some value that it computes based on, you know, definition of the RFC. And it's up to the source to decide how it sets those flow label, those 20 bits and all of the packets that the source sends that are part of the same flow, connection or stream or session or, or download or something, is set all with that same flow label for flow-based forwarding. Right. It's, so this could be super useful mm -hmm. for the entropy requirements for like mm -hmm. load balancing across multi-channel multi Ethernet or something of that nature. You can use flow label if you wanted to, or you can use, it could be used for other, other purposes. Yeah. Some kind of security other device could watch all these packets and say, oh, okay, yeah, these are all part of the same Flow. connection that right. we just saw and just allowed. Or, oh, all these packets are part of this flow. We want to treat them with some referential forwarding or something like that. Yeah, and that's a fundamentally different concept. That didn't mm -hmm. that concept didn't exist at all mm -hmm. in IPv4. Mm -mm. Um in, in any not in any practical way. I mean you could mm -hmm. do some things with QoS if you wanted to, right? But it didn't yeah. exist in the same yeah. same practical way. You um, and I, we and and Tom, we look at a lot of IPv6 packets with protocol analyzers like Wireshark. And I and maybe like 15 years ago, looking at IPv6 packets, it almost all flow labels were zeros. Zeros. It yeah. was weird to see a flow label that was set. Now I'd say looking at packets these days, it's weird to see a flow label that's all zeros, I would say. So you see a, a lot more applications and sources setting them. Maybe there's opportunities now that more apps are setting them to 
pay attention to them and do something with those flow labels. Yeah. And there's no definition about what the flow label actually has to be. Right. So for, for some folks, they're, yeah. there's they're, some RFCs that define how it can be formatted, but it's up to the source to decide and the, and the source can use, you know, either value. a three tuple or a mm -hmm. five tuple. It can decide how it wants to, you know, whether it, uh, it doesn't MD5 hash or something that would, the, the algorithm or the method Right. Uh, it's up to the source. Yeah. I mean, it could, it could embed cryptographic info in there if you wanted to, um, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you wanted to use for, for the full label tags, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it opens up new possibilities for V6 that are, that are different. Um, I don't know if I've seen anyone who's come up with anything revolutionary for it as of yet. But I'm sort of waiting for someone to do something really interesting. <laughs> yeah, ECMP, which you mentioned. Yeah, and then possibly to to do look at it by a load balancer mm. or something like that in a server farm. Pay attention to the flow label. Right. Yeah, that would make sense. Well, and the other obvious one we mentioned was the fact that it's 128 bit, which is quite a mm -hmm. bit larger than the 32 that was originally allocated for for IPv4. Mm -hmm. And we we were let's let's just call it what it was, we were relatively wasteful with the 32-bit address space that we did have for, for V4 because we discarded a whole slew of it, right? Mm -hmm. That interestingly yeah. enough, people now are trying to go back and say like, oh, can we recover that stuff and still make use of it? And I think there's so many filters and other problems and OS stacks that were written to not accept those addresses that I think it's pretty much impossible to recover any of that address space. But it doesn't doesn't mean that people aren't trying. Um, so it's a it's a very interesting quandary, but there was quite a bit of discarded address space out of the, you know, to the thirty second yeah. that we could use. It's actually yeah. not, nowhere close to that that is actually usable on the on the V four internet. No. Yeah, like all zeros zero slash eight yeah, is one uh, using two forty dot zero dot zero zero slash four. That's a whole slash four yep. class E addressing. Um. Yeah, it's just, it just seems like, you know, the reserve spaces that were set aside for other functions that never really came to pass mm -hmm. in terms of their need. Um, and I'm not saying we're not making the same mistake with V6, but I think we can afford to make the same mistakes with V6 and not mm -hmm. have it impact us in the same way. So yeah. setting, aside, setting aside large allocations for experimental or, or other purposes doesn't have as much direct impact in terms yeah. of what we're doing. So maybe what we, what we're getting right this time around versus what we're getting, what we did wrong the last time around, I'd probably say that's one of them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We probably didn't do that right. And, you know, and I think the timing was one of the other things. It was so hard to solve mm -hmm. this problem, like in, in the timing that everyone was dealing with and people all sort of ask probably the most obvious question of like, when you're moving this quickly, why can't you make it, you know, everyone, the first question we probably get when we're training, right, is how come this isn't backwards compatible? Like, why can't mm -hmm. we make this backwards compatible with IPv4? Yeah. Right? Why wasn't it? Why wasn't? And, and that's this is a far harder thing to talk through and solve when, like, when you actually try and solve this problem in terms of trying to make backward compatibility, not anywhere near as easy as you think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, because when the ITF was building IPv6, it's a complete different protocol number. The header structure is for v6 different than v4. Addressing completely different. So the header structure is different, the addressing is different, and that's what caused a V4 only host to not be able to talk to a V6 only host. Right. So we needed methods, 
you know, transition methods to make this a little more seamless, you know, dual protocol was yeah. one of those, those transition methods. Well, if you have to run both side by side, then it just perpetuates the delay. And if there's no impetus or no direct impact or, or there's no flag day to switch, then people can move at their leisure. That's one of the nice things about IPv6. But the bad thing is yeah. people can move at their leisure, yeah, which might be like kick the can down the road and delay as much as possible, you know, even though there's benefits that well, organizations I think, could derive from using v6, they wait. You know? Right. Well, I think the other thing that, I don't know if it's a wrong or right, it's just an engineering, you know, legacy you have to live with, but you force everyone to go through a transition method to get from one to the other, right? Mm -hmm. You have to, you have to do that when they're not backward compatible. Um, and so it, it, it forces, um, you know, it forces a different set of, of end user experience and, and not having that backward compatibility, but that was the rip the bandaid off yeah. sort of decision that was made is we have to do this. Right. So that's how it's going to play out. Yeah. I mean, I guess how would we have made V6? Well, maybe that's another topic, another topic for another day. <laughs> how could you have made V6 backward compatible? You know, we already have methods of embedding, you know, a 32 bit V4 address inside of a V6 address. Right. We have methods like that, like IPv4 mapped IPv6 addresses. Those right. exist. We have, we had IPv4 compatible that's V6 all. addresses. Those were deprecated. Yep. But you could do that. But, you but that's can't only do one the, way. Yeah, it's only one way. You couldn't do the opposite. You couldn't take V6 and embed it in V4. You know, so we. I guess. I guess the the argument could have been made that we could have done some sort of um, nibbling upgrade around the 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 port numbering sequences to extend in for the address space itself. Yeah. Um. That. And, and there's some arguments that are made today that effectively that's what we did with with NAT with with port address translation anyway. Um, which maybe we just used a V4 extension header in V6 that then knows that it's being encapsulated, encapsulated into the portion something? of the yeah. That's one method like that. is encapsulation or a big yeah. translator, just massive translators in the core of the internet. Yeah. We've gotten those going earlier. Yeah, or some yeah. sort of some sort of assumed. Um, uh, option configuration, so source address, destination address, and then an option that was actually a, a protocol extension yeah. that basically moved it from 32 bits to, you know, whatever, 48, yeah. 48 bits. Right? Yeah, <laughs> or, I don't know how, how you'd make it backward compatible, but yeah, but because there's no backward compatibility, that's what kind of caused some of those, caused kind of the delay and why it took time yep. to get implemented. Yeah, totally. Well, I guess I, I guess besides the the obvious, which is which is that you know we expanded the address space, mm -hmm. right? Which is really what we were trying to solve for mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Like, don't mm -hmm. don't have any don't have any misconceptions. Um, you know, the 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 reason IPv6 came about was we needed more address space. Yeah, you know, it, and it was recognized back then. It's yep. still recognized today. Mm -hmm. It's the key attribute of IPv6. It's if you're going to ask anyone what the key attribute of IPv6 is and the reason why we're using it today uh, and why it's important, the number one answer that should come out of your mouth is, "Well, we need more address space. Mm -hmm. This gives us more address space, and it gives oh, us yeah. an absolutely incredible amount of address <laughs> space." I, I don't think most uh -huh. people really realize how big it uh -huh. is, and 
it gets to a ridiculous set of numbers that are very hard to comprehend. And hopefully we'll we'll get to dive into that in some future shows to talk a little bit more about how some of that plays out. But um, you know, there there were some other benefits. I think the mm -hmm. simplicity in the header mm -hmm. and then and I yeah. think in the address allocation methods was mm -hmm. actually a win for IPv6 yeah. versus oh, yeah. IPv4. Mm -hmm. What else what else do we think are like some well, because we have an abundance of addresses and we use global addresses internally and externally everywhere, we don't need network address translation to give us more addresses. We don't need private, a private address type in IPv6. So we use global addresses everywhere and, re, and elimination of NAT adds to simplicity by eliminating complexity. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a plus. Mm -hmm. well, I guess, I guess you can still have Nat in IPv6. Just saying. We know that. <laughs> We've talked about that on other shows. Yeah. I mean, it's still yeah. a tool in the tool belt that you don't you need to. You can, but you sh do everything you, you can to not. Yeah, avoid, avoid <laughs> the last it possible. Resort. Yeah. But, it, but it's still a useful tool for certain mm -hmm. use cases. There's no reason to think that it's not. It's just, yeah. you just need to realize what you're getting yourself into if you mm -hmm. do it. Yeah. And there aren't going to be consequences. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, we can, I, I think that's a good starting point to sort of primer people. I mean, we, I guess we'll get, we'll get to the future shows around sort of maybe the address format itself. Mm -hmm. And we'll start talking about like, Hey, what do we do with these 120 bits of, of address space that we actually have and talk about how, you know, V4 and V6 are fundamentally different from each other and maybe how some of those processes work. Like mm -hmm. you know, so hold a new concept of like neighbor discovery and like, what does that look like and what does that entail and mm -hmm. what does that generic label actually encompass um, to sort of help people understand when someone's talking about neighbor discovery, you know, there's a lot more in there than maybe, maybe you, uh, maybe that you think. So mm -hmm. <laughs> you can sort of cover, we cover some ground in that. Um, mm -hmm. I think, um, I think for me, the, the key difference that I think about is really addressing the overall address space and what's available to people that frees up just an infinite set of design options that I don't think we think about in the same way. Like V4 is really constrained. Now. We talked about this in, in, in other shows about the sort of V4 thinking mm -hmm. and trying to change your mindset. And so I think the big opportunity that maybe is missing from the conversation is what does V6 actually give you from an engineering and architecture capability statement, right? And so from a basic standpoint, what's the big thing? Well, it just gives you the freedom to do a lot more stuff just from a, how how to think about your network and how to think about what you can do inside your network and how many resources you have in your network. Suddenly, address space doesn't become this constraint on you anymore. And I think people don't realize how much of a constraint that is put on them in their designs over time. Yeah, we're so used to thinking one host, one address. And yeah. with IPv6, we can have well, a host has an entire network inside of it, or it has many addresses, and they and they may come and go. But we're so used to thinking about addresses, IPv4 addresses used in a certain way. IPv6 completely changes the game and, and removes any barriers we've ever thought about how addresses are assigned to, to a device or, or a node or how they're used or how long they need to stick around. Yep. It just yeah, completely changes all the rules that we've thought about and 
and we've been so ingrained in thinking. Yeah, IPv4 has caused us to, you know, clutch the the one precious stone you have and run around mm-hmm. like you know Gollum <laughs> trying to protect your ring. <laughs> right? So my precious address. <laughs> so I, I think that's a. I think that's one of the things that's gonna. It's is is I think a big eye opener for many people is realizing suddenly like oh I can just have an address for a session like that's it and that's all it's good for that's mm-hmm. all I need it for and it just goes away. We could just never conceptually imagine discarding V4 addresses in the same way and just never reusing them again and just letting them go. Yeah, my host has two, has multiple addresses and they use them for different purposes, not just a link local, but it might have multiple globals and use those for different purposes. It might have a ULA and a global and use the ULA for private communications and a global for off-net internet communications. Yeah. You could have... And you don't just have to have two, you could have four. You could have different types of addresses used in different routing domains or realms. You can be really creative with it. And v- V6 removes the limitations that we've had for so many years with V4. Yeah, I can't agree more. Well, Scott, it was great chatting with you about this, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to more of these uh, talking about some of these basics uh, concepts, but there's yeah. things that when you look at the basics, you always learn something new. Like, oh, that's how that works. Uh, or, or you're at least reminded of the things that you've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of IPv6 Buzz. If you've got feedback or a follow-up on this topic, send us a message at packetpushers.net slash FU. We'd love to hear from you and continue the conversation. Also on packetpushers.net, you'll find a range of deep dive technical podcasts for IT pros, including heavy networking, heavy wireless, and day two cloud. There's a whole lot more on the Packet Pushers site as well, such as tutorial videos and a networking job board to help you find or fill your next great role. So whether you're deep in your career or just starting up, Packet Pushers is the place to go to grow both your skills and your personal network. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the IPv6 internet. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.